1: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Now, Rob, we're going to dig in and make our predictions for all the major NBA awards, and we're also going to do some uh, contractual discussions because Bradley Beale got a new extension, and Buddy Heald is out there uh, strongly advocating for his own financial interests uh, with the Sacramento Kings. But before we do all that, I need to get your take on the latest chapter of the China saga with the NBA. Of course, I'm referring to LeBron James's, uh, you know, big speech on Monday. Now, unfortunately, we taped just before uh, he did his pregame comments on Monday, where he pretty much lit the internet on fire. By uh, going after Daryl Morey a little bit, accusing him of essentially, uh, you know, being um, inconvenient with his tweets, uh, you know, for all the players who were over there in China on the the Lakers and the Nets, uh, saying that Morey was not educated, misinformed. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So, Rob, just big picture, what did you make of LeBron kind of, uh, you know, kicking the Hornets' nest, if you will? It was pretty
2: weird by LeBron's standards, I think, just in terms of this is a guy who is who's so calculated. I think a player and a person who really understands the impact of his every word and for him to throw around words like misinformed or uneducated or, you know, talking about the losses being not only financially, but really kind of underscoring the finances in the process. It was it was a really strange look for LeBron all around. And I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to some of the points he was making in terms of the players being in a precarious situation, let's say, in regard to the timing of Daryl Moore's comments and all these players traveling to China, basically as all that is going on. But more broadly, when you look at all of it, his full comments, his you know tweets later to clarify, because I guess he thought they needed clarification. It's just not something that we would come to expect from LeBron, I don't think.
1: was totally out of step. I mean, I think I said previously that this was the biggest mess the NBA had been in as a league since Donald Sterling uh, had to get kicked out for his racist comments. And I think this is the biggest mess that LeBron has been in uh, from a PR standpoint since he told all of his critics during the 2011 NBA Finals that they basically needed to kiss off and that, uh, you know, they needed to move on with their lives and, you know, they're they're living empty existences just trying to tear him down constantly. Uh, I think it's been that long almost a decade since he's had such a tone deaf moment or an out of step with the general sentiment moment um and it was stunning i mean being there on monday my jaw was on the floor i couldn't believe everything that he was saying now, there were a few things that made total sense. Uh, you know, He came out right off the top and said he wasn't super educated himself on the issue. It wasn't something that he had been uh, paying attention to, that Hong Kong uh, dem- demonstrations and the relationship with China was just not on his radar. That didn't surprise me, and, and it made sense uh, and it helped explain maybe why he had been quiet up until that point. Uh, And then it also didn't surprise me that he backed Adam Silver. I mean, usually in times of crises, he's one of the loudest voices in support of the commissioner. I think clearly the players were frustrated in China as this thing was unfolding. They weren't sure if they were going to be able to play. All the uh, posters are getting ripped off the buildings. And so to hear LeBron express that support for Silver made sense too. Um, And frankly, I wasn't even that surprised that he was upset about the timing. I, I mentioned that on a podcast a week or so ago that the players were not going to be happy that uh, an executive, someone who's not nearly as high profile as they are, created a mess that could cost them money and could uh, really put them out uh, at a sensitive time uh, that they would want to, you know, find out is he going to be punished or how is this going to be handled or why do we have to deal with this as players? I mean, all that sentiment was already bubbling well before LeBron went public and he just sort of confirmed, uh, you know, those kinds of things that I had been hearing. So even that part didn't surprise me. But for LeBron to kind of step out and you know, call Maury misinformed or, or not really understanding the situation multiple times, which he did, uh, for him not to even mention the protesters or, or show them no sympathy, to not really express much in the way of a defense of American ideals. I mean, he really even at one point said, look, we have freedom of expression, but. We don't hear that but very often when we're talking about freedom of expression here in America. So that was like nails on a chalkboard. And then for him to say, you know, you need to think through all your consequences. uh, And then even with the follow up tweet saying, hey, this whole thing could have been done a week later. To me, I understood where the critics were coming from, Rob, because I think a lot of critics say, look, LeBron, if you're going to be leading on social justice issues, which you have for years you've got to realize that political protest is not meant to be convenient, right? In fact, if we look back through the history of the civil rights movement, it's been its most successful when it's been inconvenient for power structures and political figures or even countries that are pushing the lines when it comes to human rights violations. Like, that's kind of the point. You know, if you're going to take a stand, it's going to be inconvenient. And uh, for LeBron to kind of dismiss Maury on those terms, I thought his critics were making good faith arguments very well. And I th- I thought they landed. What do you think? No, I think so. And that's where, you know, framing
2: it as, you know, Darryl, the problem was the timing of Daryl Morey's tweet. It really does smack of that kind of like not right now sensibility when it comes to protest or anything that is, you know, standing up for any cause we've seen here in the united states anytime there's a, a social protest or a political protest of any kind the problem is the forum in which those people are protesting it's seen as too much this or too much that it's you know portrayed as being violent even when it's not you know you shouldn't well, be out- on
1: that point like rob didn't kaepernick go through that everybody nitpicked how he was gonna absolutely react during the anthem can he stand up can he sit down who should he do it with should everyone else join him i mean he went through rounds and rounds of that hearing from. You know, veterans uh, of forward wars and, and his fellow NFL players and everything else, right?
2: Yeah. And that's even taking into account the fact that the idea, I believe, unless this has been contradicted since, came from a veteran. The idea of kneeling during the national anthem as a sign of protest and at the same time as a sign of a certain kind of respect. And so you're never going to please the people who have power or the people who have financial investment in preserving that power through whatever protest, whatever means you're choosing to employ. And so the idea, I understand if you're a player traveling to while all this is all this is going on and you're subject to a really unpredictable and authoritarian regime there and trying to grapple with okay is my personal safety at risk are we okay are these games still happening and there's so many questions and not many people with answers i understand why those players would feel vulnerable that being said we're talking about a democratic movement for an area in of the world and under chinese rule that desperately needs it and wants it and when we're relating that to oh are we going to play these games and am i going you know, are we going to be okay in our you know four and five star hotel those two things just don't really rate out as equivalent to me
1: yeah and not only that i mean i think it was pretty clear his frustration he said this you know pretty directly is like look they had you know, business meetings set up during that trip. Like he was supposed to do some Nike events. He was supposed to do other sponsorship events. And I'm sure there was a lot of money personally at stake there. And then there's also this idea that, you know, Space Jam 2 is coming out next summer and, you know, China can control which movies get into theaters in that country. And that's a lot of money uh, at stake if, you know, Space Jam 2 isn't able to, uh, to, you know, be shown there because of, you know, fallout from this incident. That, you know, LeBron uh, is... One of the power figures in this dynamic, right? Like, he's not just, uh, you know, a random NBA player kind of being held hostage by the fallout of, you know, Daryl Morey's controversial tweet. He's a guy who has an awful lot of skin in the game, perhaps as much individually as almost anybody involved. So, um, I do think, though, you know, one takeaway from his comments I think the players will actually be fairly appreciative of him kind of hopping on this, you know, taking away all the criticism and, and kind of putting it onto his shoulders, saying things that I know a lot of other players are feeling. Um, and I was trying to get that across a couple, you know, a week or so ago where, you know, they're thinking, why is the equivalent of a middle manager, you know, doing this when, uh, you know, the true superstars of the league who are trying to, you know, help spread the good of the game, uh, you know being the ones who are you know going to take the brunt of the criticism there in China. Um, I think that LeBron's going to be doing you know just fine by his colleagues. but I do wonder, Robin, what do you think? Is he going to face some some lasting damage here domestically from these critics or is everybody going to move on? I think in terms of the
2: critics here, they're mostly going to move on just because, you know, some of those critics are, are really bad faith actors or trolls who don't actually have an investment or care about this story. They just see LeBron as a target for whatever their political or, you know, career purposes are as a, as a platform to get themselves louder by latching on to this thing. I think most people are going to move on. And certainly the, you know, the media cycles here in the United States move pretty fast in general you know, Ultimately, in, in basketball circles, we gravitate towards the sport. We gravitate towards, even if it's a press conference after a game, that has more of a lasting relevance and a, and a stickiness to a player's narrative and a player's career arc than something like this would, which is, this is a huge story and certainly a huge uh, business interest for the league that they're going to have to manage and, and walk very carefully moving forward. And I think this is certainly kind of a warning shot as far as how big and explosive this whole situation could be. But as far as LeBron specifically, I feel like his career and his interests and his impact are so expansive that this is a small part of it, but it's not exactly, you know, the first or second line of his obituary.
1: Yeah, no one's going to be shocked to find out that LeBron is a capitalist, you know, (laughs) like he's really uh, an entrepreneurial capitalist, you know, stunning that uh, that's what, you know, one of his highest priorities would be. But I think that a lot of people had really bought into this image of him potentially as the next Ali. And when we're hearing the commentary from the Hong Kong protesters themselves, when we're seeing a lot of the backlash, you know, essentially accusing LeBron of being a communist and siding with China. And I mean, obviously, some of that rhetoric is. Um, you know, a little bit uh, over the top, uh, to say the least. But um, I think he maybe does lose. I don't know, for lack of a better term, some woke points here. You know, I think maybe the uh, you know the emperor lost a little bit of clothes here. You know, I think that um, obviously he's involved in global marketing campaigns for some of the biggest companies in the world, right? And so that is driving everything, including Nike's, you know, very well-received, you know, progressive activism commercials. Um, You know, money is involved. I think for LeBron, he was enjoying kind of this, uh, you know, this cloak of of goodwill. You know, people saying, hey, look, this guy is on the right side of history. He's changing a lot of conversations. He's doing it for the right reasons. He's an advocate for the little person, whether it's a You know, a student in in Ohio who's looking to get a better education, whether it's, you know, professional athletes who have been kind of put into boxes at various points, whether it's college athletes that are trying to get paid. And I think this was a, a real clear case where he's just kind of on the wrong side of history and people will remember it. Well, and, and what a weird asterisk this is for a year
2: and it's certainly a summer of player empowerment of the idea that these superstars have so much power in the league, and yet the superstar who has the most power, this, you know, really a power broker, as you put it, in LeBron, he's still a guy who's effectively being muzzled by his interests and his financial concerns and have you know having Nike in one ear whispering and the NBA in the other ear whispering and trying to manage this whole situation. It really does kind of put everything into stark relief in terms of these guys are powerful in the NBA and certainly powerful on a world stage as celebrities, but they're
1: still subject to these huge, glowering financial interests that are all around them. Did this saga teach you anything new about LeBron? Uh, I know you mentioned that you don't think it's going to be maybe the lead of his obituary. And, I mean, let's be honest. This guy drives news cycles every single day. And his initial response to this whole controversy on Monday was to come out and just play an incredible game on Wednesday. And, you know, he's tossing you know, behind the head, left-handed passes to wide open corner shooters and, you know, throwing jump alley-oops to the Lakers, bigs, keeping everybody involved. I mean, it was a pretty spectacular preseason performance, albeit against, you know, a Warriors team that was, you know, sort of only halfway there and and resting Stephen Curry. Um, But I didn't think it was a coincidence that he came out and had, you know, an incredible showing. I think he's, you know, his mentality is just kind of, you know, tweet through it, play through it, Instagram through it. You know, It's like, if if we have a setback on Monday, that doesn't mean I can't change the story on Wednesday. But I'm curious, do you feel like you learned something about LeBron or, or did this change your opinion of him in any way?
2: Well, I mean, I think every high pressure situation of any kind tells us something about a person, right? It's it's where they go. It's kind of the, the ideas and the tenets they flock to. It's where they find a certain level of security and how they look to kind of project you know, power or or calm or authority on a subject, and how they look to kind of reassert the natural balance of things. And I think, you know, it is telling some of the words that LeBron chose. The fact that he chose to, you know, first reach for the, you know, the financial concessions that these players were making, and what they had at risk. Um, it's one of those things where you, you know, LeBron doesn't have to go out on a limb and speak to the substance of what the people in Hong Kong are protesting for, or, you know, the intricacies of Chinese politics with Hong Kong or Taiwan or anywhere else, that's not something he has to do. But I did think that he might, I thought it was at least on the table, it was possible that once he got back stateside that he might, you know, stand up for that cause in a different kind of way. And maybe, maybe that says more about me than it does him, maybe I should have known better.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, we're not asking for a ton here, you know, stand up for American values. Like when you're saying uh, you believe in the freedom of expression, don't say, but it was inconvenient and poorly timed after the fact, or, but you need to consider the repercussions of what you're saying. Um, you know, that just comes off really, really wrong. And, and same thing with the Hong Kong protesters. Like you're saying, he doesn't have to come out and, you know, say uh, fight for freedom, but he can say, look, like I empathize with people who are engaged in a political struggle. And, you know, it's a complicated situation. But, you know, certainly, uh, you know, my heart goes out to anyone who's a, a victim of violence. And there was just none of that from LeBron, right? I mean, at all, no references uh, to them, you know, really a dismissive tone uh, towards the entire issue. And of course, no activist needs to be, uh, you know, up to date on every single issue, you know, he shouldn't be forced to, you know, uh, comment on, Uh, you know, the the relative morality of the protesters, just like Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich, who we defended last week, shouldn't be forced to comment on it. Uh, But to to not comment is its own political statement. And to not comment while criticizing Daryl Morey, uh, to me, it's sort of like a one-two punch on behalf of uh, the Chinese. And I was just thinking the whole time, like, if you're uh, Chairman Xi, like, you're watching that. Do you just throw a party or a parade? Like, how big? Like, yeah. what is your response to LeBron's comments? I'm not even being facetious here because I thought China won the PR battle the whole way through. And that's true, even though Adam Silver tried his best to have it both ways to show the Chinese government respect while also standing up for American values. And with LeBron. It was just respect. There really wasn't standing up for American values in any meaningful way. And if anything, LeBron was sort of victim blaming a little bit uh, with, with Daryl Morey uh, right in the middle of it. Like, what more could China have asked
2: for? Well, I think LeBron, in general, in previous situations, has come across as you know relatively empathetic for a person of his stature and level of fame and stardom like it's very hard to be that level of celebrity and still be kind of a a normal human being in some sense and I think LeBron is larger than life but has always kind of connected in a humanistic way to some of the causes he supported and I think certainly the Chinese government can be very glad that the guy who stepped in front of that microphone was not LeBron the human it was LeBron the spokesperson for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, think about how much worse it would have been if LeBron had said what Maury said for them, right? Right. Uh, and I think that there was, you know, some concern from them in terms of shutting down the press availabilities in China, of handling the whole, uh, you know, situation that the way that they did in kind of an authoritarian fashion, where they were concerned that one of these popular sports heroes with their population would, you know, raise the stakes even more. And in fact, it was exactly the opposite. And Uh, Again, I think that they wind up being the big winners. I was stunned that uh, LeBron didn't handle the whole situation a little bit more deftly uh, with time to prepare for it. Um, It was the first time that I can remember that they rushed out cleanup statements on Twitter like within minutes uh, after the fact. So I think he realized and heard the blowback, or at least people close to him did. Um, They tried to tamp it down. It didn't really work, but I do think that's a signal that, uh, you know, he, of his own, Uh, lack of care in terms of how he communicated. We've got one question from the Open Floor Globe, and they email us at openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Charlie writes, has Kawhi Leonard's strategy of remaining quiet worked out well for him or what? He can now remain completely silent on China and earn endorsement deals from there, no problem. Works out great. What do you guys think? So, uh, Rob, I mean, what I mean, I, I think uh, he's being a little bit, uh, you know, facetious here. But one thought that I did have as this circus was unfolding with the Lakers is that Kawhi made the right decision to go to the Clippers, right? Like, can you imagine Kawhi being caught up in all of this, and especially the LeBron angle of it? That sounds like his worst nightmare, doesn't it? It does, and I mean for him. Certainly when you're already kind of so
2: quiet, as Charlie mentions, it does give you a lot of cover in situations like this. Not only not being on the Lakers, being on, you know, a relatively dimmer spotlight in terms of the Clippers locally and nationally. But then just the idea that, you know, it's come up a lot in recent weeks. We've been talking about Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr and why reporters ask those guys questions. It's not like people are flocking to Kawhi to comment on stuff like this. I think he'll probably be asked about it because he's a star of a certain stature. But ultimately, you know, if you engage in these kinds of topics, if you engage thoughtfully on social and political events, people are gonna keep coming back to you. And if you're like Kawhi, where you shut down even questions about basketball or your life, I don't think you're gonna necessarily be the go-to quote on a
1: story like this. Yeah, for sure. The expect, expectations bar has been set for him, right? And it's uh, pretty low, um, at least when it comes to off-court commentary on the court. I think the bar just keeps getting uh, uh, you know, raised higher and higher year after year. But uh, in this situation, the only thing I could think of was those days we were waiting in July, you know, is it going to be the Raptors? Is it going to be the Lakers? Is it going to be the Clippers? And one of the biggest factors that we discussed at that time was, is he comfortable playing on a LeBron team in the LeBron glare, Uh, you know, with that kind of inevitable ego battle, whether it's sharing touches with him, Anthony Davis and LeBron, whether it's, just dealing with the Lakers circus, which, you know, involves, you know, 50 to 60 reporters circling around LeBron after every single game is like, is that something that Kawhi wants to be a part of? And the Clippers pitch the whole time was like, no, forget about that. Just come over here and play on the blacktop team. Don't worry about any of the drama. Don't worry any of the hype. Uh, We're all basketball over here. And I think it's one of those situations where LeBron can't help himself being news. You know, it's absolutely inevitable day after day after day and I think for Kawhi, he found a good fit for himself because I could just imagine him hearing about all of this and just being like, are you serious? We have to deal with this. LeBron said, what? Now I'm getting questions about it. How long is this going to go on for? Why can't we just play? I don't want to be sitting in the hotel. This is crazy. Um, and, you know, so kudos to him for knowing his own priorities, not giving in to the, you know, potential, you know, greater benefit of playing on a super uh, super team, Uh, Lakers version with LeBron and AD, and setting up what's going to be kind of a fascinating rivalry and contrasting personalities between these two teams. All right, Rob, I think that's enough of China. And hopefully, we're not going to have to come back to it again. The only wild card here is Kyrie Irving, who has (laughs) not weighed in and has been ducking the media for multiple days here. So he's the one guy I think who could probably get us uh, to triple back on this subject. But I, I do think lastly, LeBron speaking and kind of hopping on this grenade is something that's going to protect all of the other NBA players who don't want to speak on this topic. Uh, they can now just point to what happened to LeBron and say, like, no, hands off. I, I, want, I want to have nothing to do with that. I do think there's going to be kind of a silencing or a chilling effect um, on the NBA side because of what LeBron said. And, you know, that's a little bit, uh, you know, scary in its own right, given his influence. But I, I think that's a fact of life. All right, Rob, on to lighter news. Um, let's break down our award ballots. And if people haven't seen your award picks, they are up on SI.com. So go ahead and check that out. But let's go through the six major awards. And I want to hear who you picked and why. So let's start with the biggest one, most valuable player of 2020. Who do you got? I think it's still
2: Giannis again. And it starts from a position of really what has changed, because everything that made Giannis a great candidate last year still holds, only now he's getting deeper into his prime, maybe he's flushing out his shooting a little bit. Otherwise, I mean, there's some other interesting candidates. I think, you know, Steph Curry is going to have, at minimum, a very different season than he did. James Harden's still there, Joel Embiid could be a great candidate, obviously, of LeBron and AD, and how they'll kind of jockey through the MVP race as, you know, teammates and, and what effect that has on their voting. But I think Giannis, like, ultimately, the Bucks are still poised to be really, really good he's still going to be you know incredibly central to everything they do and going to put up crazy numbers so i really don't see why we would move away from him unless there's some kind of specific fatigue or specific case against him as it relates to these
1: other guys this is the most frustrating mvp race to sort of predict that i can remember in years because i was trying to talk myself into all these other stories Like I wanted to get behind Steph Curry, but then I got scared off by some of these preseason results because his teammates are just horrible Yeah, and Steph Curry could play like an MVP and they still might, you know, struggle to get to 45 wins. Right. So that makes it tricky. Uh, You know, LeBron and Anthony Davis have both looked at times sensational during the preseason, but I have a hard time believing that they're going to be that locked in night to night over the course of 82 games. I think there's going to be, whether it's minor injuries or taking a few weeks off here or there. Uh, on LeBron's side, uh, from an intensity standpoint, uh, that's a little bit, you know, difficult for me to envision. I have a hard time seeing, you know, Kawhi Leonard, a guy who gets really no buzz at all in this conversation, even though he's one of the very best players in the world, wanting to play enough or gunning for this award. Uh, Paul George is already going to miss something like 10 games. So I think, you know, a guy who finished in the top three last year, you already have to kind of strike him off the list from the top. One guy I gave a lot of thought to was Damian Lillard, but you know you, you look at the threes and fours and fives that he has to play with. I mean, to me, there's a really rough minutes uh, and rough lineups that he's going to be out there with. I think that brings down Portland's ceiling a little bit. That one's tricky to get behind. You know how I feel about Westbrook and the corrupting factor uh, on on Harden and the Rockets. So I can't go back to Harden. And I think in general, people are, are pretty fatigued of James Harden. So as I'm looking around the league for these different cases, even a guy like Joel Embiid or Jokic, where uh, I think both those guys are going to be playing on really, really good teams, having major impact, putting up really good stats uh, each in his own way. Are they going to be putting up better stats and necessarily winning more games than Giannis? Like if this winds up being sort of this head to head competition, how confident do I feel that Jokic is going to have, you know, more uh, boxes checked than Giannis? And then same deal with Embiid, uh, because he just tends to miss some time. Um, And, you know, I think that that winds up being a a big factor. If the Bucks and Sixers are kind of in a similar place standings wise, uh, Giannis is playing more minutes and more games that's probably going to be a lot of people's tiebreakers. So all of that was a really long windup to say that I agree with you on Giannis. And even though everyone's going to make fun of us, you know, Giannis Inc. and all this, uh, I don't know what the other argument is. So I'm curious. If Miller's out there, you know, let us know. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Who is your most convincing candidate to win MVP besides the favorite? And, um, well, I I do think Ben, if I can cut in for a sec, I do think that Jokic is
2: a great choice there because if any of these teams, if we're looking at kind of team success and individual production and total impact, the Nuggets are a team with, you know, so many of these groups in the West have a lot of, you know, whether it's volatility or injury concerns or chemistry, you know, chemistry issues in terms of new players coming together and not having a lot of continuity yet. The Nuggets have the continuity. They have one clear superstar who's not going to have to split the vote with anybody. And I think they could easily end up getting the number one seed in the West. And so if they end up with a Milwaukee-like win total, then I think Jokic is pretty deep into this conversation, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. And like his advanced stats are going to be incredible. I mean, they were last year, his per game stats will be awesome. The winning potential is definitely there. Um, you know, he doesn't have to worry about, it's like Giannis is in this big market advantage, right? So it's like Denver versus uh, Milwaukee, there's kind of similar challenges there. So, you know, from a voter's perspective, he's going to be in the mix. Um, I guess, I just wonder, will the voters rally around this idea of Jokic as A guy who just plays a game a different way it's not about his own scoring it's about his incredible passing numbers will they rally around this idea that his offensive impact is so major that it makes up or compensates for the fact that he is not an elite defensive player because that's the other tricky part about Giannis. i mean this guy's a defensive player of the year candidate all defensive type guy year after year and so i think a lot of voters are going to say yes they both have awesome numbers they're both great on offense they're both playing for winning teams well, one of them's an elite defender and the other one's, uh, you know, looks like he's 40 pounds overweight. And that might be unfair and, uh, you know, too, uh, you know, superficial on those voters behalf. But I do think people think that way. Well, I think, you know,
2: the question of who could win MVP is pretty broad this year. And Jokic is certainly in that group. A lot of other guys we've already talked about from, you know, from LeBron to Lillard to AD, etc. But the question of who will win, I just, again, as for all these points we've covered, I don't see a reason why you would stray away from Giannis after the year he just had.
0: After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kid, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd, American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck, so you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation.
1: All right, after that boring discussion of our favorite player, what about defensive player of the year? Where are you at on that? I'm thinking Joel Embiid, and you know, it's it's kind
2: of a, a a combined case of, you know, an elite interior defender who historically, that's the kind of player who wins defensive player of the year. And then you also have a guy who could just be the best defensive player on the best defensive team because the Sixers are so stacked on that end with so many smart,
1: long, versatile defenders that they could get kind of a team recognition by giving that thing to Embiid. I like that one. I'm going to go a slightly different direction. I'm this one. I'm picking with my heart rather than my head. This is what I want to see happen. I want Anthony Davis to win Defensive Player of the Year. I think that's the best possible narrative that we can get from these Lakers. Um, I think he's been a legit candidate multiple times during his career. Uh, he's an uh, incredible highlight defender for sure. I mean, some of the block shots that he gets, the ground that he covers, athletic plays that he makes. Um, but I think it's really about discipline, you know, team context, covering up for some weak uh, you know, points in their rotation of guys who aren't. Necessarily elite level defensive guys, and then also just changing a culture. I mean, ultimately, that's what I want to see from Anthony Davis. I want to see a renewed commitment to winning, uh, you know, a renewed willingness to do all the little things. Now that he's on this uh, big stage, and I think the hype factor for him can definitely help. I mean, I can already feel it around these Lakers games. People getting really, really excited about the results on the court and and rediscovering what an incredible player that he is. um, Just you know, because he's on a much bigger platform. So. To me, it's the story I want to see, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if, you know, the L.A. hype machine is able to kind of like push him in some of these categories. And there's also the factor that, you know, L.A. was just average defensively last year, right? So if they're able to somehow move into the top 10 or even the top eight, it will be easy to sort of give him the credit for that. Um, whereas, you know, some of these other teams, you know, maybe like especially like the Jazz, right? Like Rudy Gobert can turn in another incredible defensive player of the year worthy season But it doesn't have that easy narrative, the turnaround or the big boost narrative that, you know, somebody like Anthony Davis would be able to benefit from.
2: Well, you mentioned earlier that, you know, when you have LeBron as a teammate, everything he says becomes a story and it's kind of irksome in its own way. But the flip side of that is if LeBron tells people that you're a Defensive Player of the Year candidate, which he kind of already has alluded to, and I'm certainly, you know, I'm certain he'll be kind of parroting that throughout the rest of the season. If there's any truth to it, you kind of become one by default. And I think, you know, Davis has played on some uneven defensive teams, but one of the consistent themes is when he's on the court, those teams have been quite good defensively. It's just a matter of who's on the court with him and can he sufficiently lift up all those other players. But there's, there's really no question that individually he's a really spectacular
1: defender. What about most improved player? I like my answer for this one. I think it might excite you, but who you got? Ooh, uh, I almost want to go to yours first, but I, I've got Jonathan Isaac
2: for mine. I feel like he's one of these guys who, you know, you look around the league and he, he just feels like he's on the cusp of something. And I don't quite know what that all something right, is all right, yet. All right. Are you falling into
1: Pascal Siakam <laughs> Jr. territory here, though? <laughs> I'm not. I mean, that, I'm is not it a that, little bit... A little bit too obvious. I mean, come on. You see Pascal win it and you want to just like replicate the same model. Is that what's happening? God, I mean, Jonathan Isaac wishes he could replicate that model. But it's it's so tough with these guys
2: who don't control the ball a lot to kind of come along in their first few seasons. I think there's just a, a longer period to kind of figure out if you're not a guy who can just kind of park on the perimeter and shoot and you're in an offense that isn't necessarily amenable to just, like, constant movement or cutting or dribble handoffs and stuff like that, there's there's a really fine line to walk for guys like Isaac. I think he's starting to figure it out. He's also working from a really reasonable place where he improved a little bit last season, but it's not like he blew up so much that now winning most improved would require him to be, like, a 20-point scorer or something like that. I think he can be a pretty reasonable, you know, scoring in the teens, getting his rebounds a little closer to, you know, eight or nine a game, and then also just being a more you know, continuous involved presence in an offense that that kind of needs him to be. You know, the Magic need to continue to, to tinker and try some different angles and some different things. You know, some of that's going to involve Aaron Gordon, who maybe he's a candidate for this award too, you know, shifting around what Nikola Vucevic does. So I think they have a lot of kind of avenues to explore. But Isaac, to me, is the most interesting one in terms of a guy who could really pop.
1: So I don't know if my answer is going to make me sound like a hype beast, like I'm standing outside, you know, the flight club in Manhattan for like, you know, 20 minutes before it opens up and to get my BAPE or my Supreme or whatever. Oh, boy. I'm going for Luka Doncic as most improved player. I'm kind of following the De'Aaron Fox model. He almost won it last year with that big improvement from year one to year two. And I think that Luca was definitely better than Fox in their respective rookie seasons, right? And so if you're going to make an argument against Luca, it's that he was already good. So, you know, he's he's not like he's coming from nowhere. I just think that Luca has a chance to be really, really good and a high-impact player this season. I don't know if that translates into, uh, you know, a playoff trip necessarily, but I do think it could lead to an all-star appearance. I mean, he's clearly a very popular Uh, Player And I know he's not the flavor of the month. I mean, that's become Zion. Uh, But, you know, I think that his style of play, his moxie, the numbers that he's already capable of putting up all help. I love that he committed to his body this summer. Um, And I think he's he's looked really impressive uh, during flashes uh, of the preseason. And he's got some real help. You know, I think that Porzingis is, you know, the NBA's most obvious forgotten man at this point. He hasn't played in an NBA game in 20 months, which seems insane given how fast some people come back from injuries, uh, you know, major injuries, uh, you know, given the modern medical technology. Uh, to me, I just think, you know, Luca's ready to take a big step forward. It's a little bit like Giannis, um, you know, uh, just slightly later in his career where he was like a most improved player candidate almost like three years in a row, um, where, you know, he just keeps blowing people's mind with what he's able to do. But something says to me, Luca's going to have a special season, and then people are going to want to find a way to kind of reward it. And this could be one way to do that.
2: Well, I think the voting on it is going to be tough just because, as you mentioned, he was already so good. But if we really broke it down, I mean, I've always been of the opinion that if you're looking at player development, it's just so much easier to go from out of the rotation to like decent rotation guy or from a bench guy to a solid starter than it is to go from, you know, kind of a fringe star or a star to that superstar level like that jump is so much more difficult than any of those other progressions. And so if we're looking at what the most meaningful improvements are, I think he could definitely be in that category. And I think maybe to push back against the idea that you know a, a guy who's already as good as Luca couldn't possibly make that jump, if we look at the other players who might be in the running for this award and the players who recently have won it, guys like like Siakam, like Victor Oladipo, they've generally been guys who who kind of become stars, who their endpoint is a star player. And so for guys like Isaac, for the other candidates who are, are good players who you know could make some nice improvements this year. We're not really talking about the same class. I think this award historically does tend to go to guys who take big scoring jumps and overall kind of big jumps into the higher tiers of the league.
1: No, for sure. You read my mind. I mean, I was going down the list saying, okay, which of these guys do I trust to go from second or third tier stars and really, you know, have a chance to, to jump into that top 20 category or maybe even a top 15 category. And that's very aggressive for Luca. He's still incredibly young. Um, but we know about the polish to his game. I think the, the weight loss is definitely going to help him. Uh, we know he's going to have all the opportunity in the world in Dallas to put up crazy numbers. I just think the table is set pretty well for him. Uh, and when you're looking around at, you know, similar guys, uh, you know, in that, you know, same age range, I'm betting on him before I'm betting on a lot of these other guys. All right. Um, I mentioned his name earlier. Do we need to discuss rookie of the year or are we just going to mail the, uh, trophy down to Zion in the big easy right now. Yeah, let's go ahead and pack it up and ship that thing out. Is that uh overreaction to the preseason, Rob? Because I'll tell you what, I've been watching these Pelicans preseason games like their appointment television. <laughs> as soon as I see the Zion tweets come across Twitter, I'm in. Every single time. They do not disappoint. They've been super fun to watch. He's been Uh, way better than I expected out of the gate. I thought there was going to be some stumbles, some adjustments. I thought he was going to be good, but he's been certainly a lot better than good. Now I heard uh, the guys formerly known as the starters. Now they're called No Dunks Inc. They're already starting, Rob, Zion for All-Star campaign as a rookie. Are you ready to go that far? Well, I think Skeets
2: even, you know, floated the idea of Zion for MVP as one of the rare rookies who could kind of get into that conversation. And I mean, that would require the Pelicans to be pretty damn good, but it's crazy that it's not completely outside the realm of possibility. I think All-Stars, I think that's in the running. I think we're going to be talking about him potentially, you know, as one of the... All right,
1: let's (laughs) pump the brakes here. Skeets, you're a little too drunk on maple syrup up there in Toronto, okay? We're not going to put Zion into the MVP conversation quite yet. But I think All-Star's starter, if you have the fan vote and a really impressive you know start to the season from the Pelicans, it's not out of the question. And All-Star, even in the loaded Western Conference where those spots are pretty tricky to get, I mean, like gun to your head, would you say he, he could be an All-Star this year or not yet?
2: I think, I think he will. And I think the starter is Whoa. kind of the avenue to get there. Uh, but, you know, with the fan appeal, because if anything, I think you know, maybe this is a little bit of nostalgia talking for me, but like one of the things the NBA hasn't had recently is that that Blake Griffin-like effect when he was a rookie, which as you mentioned, the idea that the Pelicans are kind of appointment viewing now, that all of a sudden everyone is going to be watching Zion all the time. And like the combination of the interest he draws, <laughs> the fact that people are going to be tuning into those games and want, and like, it's going to be such an event. I think there's going to be a lot of justification, fair or not, for the idea that he is this great transcendent talent already. Um, And we'll see how much that lines up with the reality. But I think the
1: interest is certainly there to kind of get him into that game. What is the largest vehicle that Zion could jump over (laughs) during a dunk contest? I mean, do you think he could clear a Hummer? Or he doesn't even necessarily have to clear it because he could probably just go through a Hummer if he needed to, like push came to shove. If those two things hit head on, I'm more worried about the Hummer than I am about Zion. Um, No, I love the Blake Griffin comparison. I think from a numbers standpoint, everything that Blake did as a rookie is on the table for Zion, even though he's younger, uh, because Blake spent a little bit more time uh, in college and also had uh, the knee injury right out of the gate. Um, so I think that's a, a great comp from the, the buzz factor. I mean, people forget about young Blake. I mean, first of all, they like to nitpick that dunk contest. That dunk contest from Blake was unreal being in the building for it, one of the best. I mean, until Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine came along, that was the best dunk contest i had. had. It was a little bit hokey. I will grant you that, but it was, uh, you know, quite the show, And that's why I'm hoping Zion goes to Chicago. I think he might sneak on as a reserve. I wouldn't necessarily bet on it. I will say this. If I was Adam Silver and there was an injury replacement, I don't care what Zion's (laughs) numbers are. I'm picking Zion no matter what. It's almost like when David Stern just put Jeremy Lin in the rookie sophomore game just unilaterally, uh, you know, that one year. But with all that being said, it's definitely his rookie of the year award to lose. We can agree. Totally. Okay. We both picked him. Another boring answer. Let's get to Sixth Man, because I like my answer on this one, too. And I I know it's different than yours, but you tell me yours first. Well, I think
2: this is an especially weird year for Sixth Man because Lou Williams, normally we would just kind of give him this award or pencil him in for it. And he's just going to be a little less critical to the Clipper offense this year in a way that I think his numbers are going to drop a bit. I think he's still going to be really important. They still need him, certainly, with, you know, if Kawhi's going to miss any time, we know Paul George is going to miss some time. He's going to have to step up for them. But is he going to be as, you know, compelling a candidate for that award this year relative to, I think, some other, some other pretty credible ones? And to me, I look at a guy who's kind of an analog in a lot of ways to what Lou does in Spencer Dinwiddie, who produces, you know, not to quite the, the same extent that Lou has historically, but is you know really important to what their nets are doing. Can play both behind Kyrie Irving and then with him. I think he's just going to be so important to what Brooklyn does that he's going
1: to kind of get into that conversation in a different way this year. He's a really underrated player, um, and I think that the, the Kyrie halo effect is kind of what you're banking on, right? It's like everybody's talking about this team, and it's like, oh, hey, by the way, this guy over here, who you know, Nets fans have been praising for a while. Uh, is actually way better than you realize because you've never bothered to watch net game, Nets games previously. Is, is that sort of where you're going?
2: Well, it could even be that kind of thing, too, where when we, when Kyrie's on the floor, he's electric and, and awesome in his own way, but he kind of like stops the flow of the offense. And then Spencer Dinwiddie comes in and the offense moves oh. a little bit better. And people are like, oh, the, remember how the Nets used to play? And I say that, you know, even though Dinwiddie is, you know, part of the reason he's good is because he's a really good isolation player. He's certainly not immune to that. Uh, but I do think there could be a little bit of that factor in terms of what people don't like about Kyrie. They're going to see when Dinwiddie's on the floor running the show for kind of the way the Nets used to play.
1: I wish I knew about more about currency so I could compare, uh, Kyrie to like the struggling pound and, you know, Dinwiddie is like the raging Bitcoin. Uh, but alas, that's definitely out of my depth, but that's, <laughs> that's fascinating. I had not considered that angle, um, I will certainly like to hate watch Kyrie so that I can uh, prop up Dinwiddie at at his expense. That sounds great. I actually did that exact same thing with D'Angelo Russell last year. It worked very well for me. (laughs) Um, My pick is one of Lou Williams' teammates, and I think your point on Lou Williams is a very good one. So much of why he won last year was the takeovers in the fourth quarters, the clutch moments, uh, you know, big shot after big shot. And then also just like, you know, I think he had a 50 point game. I mean, there were some real explosions from him last year. I'm not sure that's going to be the story for him this year. So I'm going to pick Montrez Harrell. And again, I'm picking with my heart on this one, Rob. I think if he was a Laker, this guy would be a household name. Uh, his style of play is so much fun to watch. He's very versatile. He's a two way contributor. Um, he's going to be very useful as a closing five against a lot of lineups around the league and I also think he's going to be one of these guys where you can make the argument oh he's the most valuable player on the best bench in the league right now Doc Rivers has talked about using all sorts of different lineups so that could kind of uh, put a, a wrench in my plans but I think ideally he is pretty committed to using uh, Montrezl Harrell off the bench uh, for most of the season if at all possible Uh, And so I think, uh, you know, when he's in that role, he's just really hard to stop. He overwhelms people with his energy. Uh, He's a smart team player, doesn't get enough credit for that. Uh, I think he's already gotten the respect of the new stars, uh, which is, you know, no surprise. He's a, you know, a funny guy off the court. Uh, He's into all that hype-beast stuff that I was mentioning earlier. He had like a Yu-Gi-Oh chain or or however you pronounce that uh, the other day that kind of, you know, lit the, uh, you know, the the trend-setting internet on fire. Uh, so I just think that he's one of these guys who has a chance to really you know, break through as a personality like on and off the court now that the Clippers are going to be getting a lot more attention. Um, and he deserves the credit because I think he was a very legit six-man-of-the-year candidate last year. I thought he should have gotten uh, arguably you know, even more votes than uh, Lou Williams just because of the defensive impact side of things. And um, it would be very cool to see him get that level of attention. Well, I mean, six-man or not, isn't it just kind of
0: incredible
2: that Montrez might be one of like the 10 most important players in the league this season in terms of the position he plays and the specific need for the Clippers.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then he's also being set up as like the fall guy to have to deal with Anthony Davis. potentially <laughs> too. So I mean, there, there's layers on layers here uh, for what his season is going to look like. But I just think to me, he's one of these guys who's just underappreciated, just way too underappreciated. For the same reasons I always cape for Draymond, and I have for like the last five years, and, and you know that because you've been on the, the wrong side of hours-long phone calls during top 100 sessions about how we need to be the people who stand up for Draymond, I feel very similarly uh, about Montrez Harrell. All right. The sixth and final award category, Rob, your 2020 Coach of the Year is... I'm picking Quinn Snyder, and I think
2: it's you know the Jazz have the makings of a really good team, and specifically a good regular season team. I think they're just going to win a ton of games, and they're a team that doesn't you know lacking that one kind of traditional superstar or really any combination of superstars on their team like these other teams have. You know, Mike Conley is going to be responsible for some of the improvement. Bojan Bogdanovic, obviously, like those are great players to add. But to win a ton of games without a you know a traditional superstar typically a lot of the respect and, you know, the the accolades end up going to the coach in that scenario. Quinn's a very, very good one who's done good work for a long time. I think this year it
1: kind of pays off for him. Not to be a jerk, Rob, but did you go a little too hard for conventional wisdom this year with your picks, man? I mean, I feel like, you know, did you just let a computer pick these or what? Yeah. I mean, just a randomizer, you know, you put, you put in the probabilities, you play out the scenario, let it go. No, I just... Uh, I first of all, the logic that you've put forward on every single one of these, I could definitely see taking place. I think Quinn Snyder has a chance to be viewed as the favorite this year. Um, when you're looking at what he's gotten out of very good teams in the past, this is best roster he's ever had, right? I think so. But I mean, as far as the favorite for this one is
2: always so tough because it ends up getting assigned to like some kind of random combination of you know improved, you know, your win improvement year over year combined with some like weird narrative thing. I have a hard time predicting, you know, from the beginning of the year who it's going to be, because you could easily see, you know, Michael Malone or Doc Rivers or Mike Budenholzer or Brett Brown, like basically anyone who's going to be coaching a good team this year. It's so wide open. I think it's going to be pretty difficult to kind of pare this thing down to, you know, three or five candidates for the final ballots.
1: Well, let's be honest. I mean, Lee Jenkins isn't around anymore to influence this race like he did with the Dwayne Casey profile that he wrote a couple of (laughs) years ago. Uh, I think this is going to fall on you, Rob. I mean, you're going to have to go to Utah and you're going to have to write the definitive Quinn Snyder story and say, yes, he looks like a serial killer sometimes, but he's actually got a heart of gold and he's a great coach and his players love him. I think that's the angle, and I think you have a chance to really directly influence this entire thing, and I just hope you're ready for that power. It's all I've ever wanted, to be able to tip the scales on something like this. (laughs) The stakes are enormous. (laughs) Um, I went the narrative way, like you're describing, because narratives do hop into this uh, conversation a lot. For sure. Uh, Alvin Gentry, New Orleans Pelicans, all right? What do you think? I like it. I like the case. My thought is this. I think they have a chance to be pretty decent, you know, pretty good and potentially make the playoffs. And if they do make the playoffs, even as an eight seed in the Western Conference, you know, media people love to fall in love with the cute stories, right? And the Pelicans would be like the cutest story of all time. Oh, they got building around a rookie and they made the playoffs. Nobody saw this coming when Anthony Davis wanted out, Um, you know, and I think Alvin Gentry does deserve real credit for how he handled a very toxic situation with Anthony Davis last year. Uh, So I think that he's got some accumulated goodwill from last year. If they're able to make the playoffs after losing Anthony Davis, I think for just the casual voter, that's just like a no-brainer. Oh, what an incredible coaching job. I can't believe anyone would be able to do that, right? So I think it just kind of is that low-hanging fruit that people look at. I think they're going to be very fun to watch, and I've really enjoyed – how he's using Zion. So creative, right? You know, just moving him around, keeping him on the move, letting him get downhill before he even gets the ball. And he's got a lot of pieces to work with. And I just think he's kind of the offensive mind to, um, you know, get the most out of them. And so, you know, from that standpoint, I also think he just gets along with a, a wide range of personalities too. And I think that David Griffin has done a really nice job of getting you know good locker room guys, whether it's Reddick. Derek Favors, you know, kind of the list goes on. I mean, he's he's clearly very culture-focused, and I think that that's a a really good match with Gentry. Uh, And so, to me, they're they're set up very nicely uh, to kind of be America's darling here a little bit, and I think that that could be one person who would benefit from that would be Alvin Gentry. The other one, of course, would maybe be, uh, you know, David Griffin in the Executive of the Year race, depending on uh, how things shake out. Uh, I mean, that can be tricky when you're the one who's trading away a star player, um, you know, usually the you know, people kind of go the other way and they would give it to like the Lakers front office or something. But, um, I think he's just, you know, in this mix where he could be one of the biggest narrative winners by the end of it.
2: No, I think so. I mean, the, the case you laid out is really like NBA media catnip in
1: terms of the pace that the Pelicans are going to play. The fact know, that they how have cynical Zion. do I sound right now? <laughs> well, I mean, really like I'm not even making real picks. I'm just trying to like prognosticate based on, you know, very low, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, very low expectations for my colleagues. Well,
2: I love how you even did like anonymous media member voice as you were like gushing about the <laughs> Pelicans. It really it really is true to form.
1: Uh, God, I hate myself, Rob. All right, that's my picks. Um, it could happen. I'm not guaranteeing it, but I think that would be a fun one. And, uh, you know, now that I'm not actually a real voter uh, because of the Washington Post ethical guidelines, I tend to approach these questions differently. I think that you approached it how I normally would, which is, pure logic, you know, pick the the obvious favorites or pick the people who have the absolute best shot of winning, maximize your chances of being right. And this year, I'm kind of more laid back, you know, Uh, kind (laughs) of like kicking my shoes off, letting the sand go between my toes. I'm just trying to, you know, root for a good story. I don't know who I'm becoming, Rob. I see you over there hiding behind your ethics. It's terrible. Um, Okay, let's close this up with uh, quick conversations here. We got another question at uh, openfloormail at gmail.com open floor mail at gmail.com. And Byron was following up on our conversation about California versus the world where we, we drafted teams. And he said, Ben, why didn't you include Buddy Healed on your 13-man rotation uh, for the California team? He shot 42% from three the past two seasons. And now somehow the Kings don't want to pay him. What is happening? And Byron, uh, I'll be honest, I was just kind of going for the biggest names when I was uh, filling out those teams just to kind of try to wow people Uh, You know, I wasn't totally going for fit there other than throwing Looney on uh, just for matchup purposes. You know, gun to my head, do I want Buddy Heald or a guy like D'Angelo Russell? You're probably right. Uh, I would probably prefer uh, Buddy Heald. But you also look at, um, you know, the California team. I mean, how much wing talent do they already have? Is Buddy really going to be sneaking onto the court when you're dealing with the likes of, you know, LeBron and Kawhi? I mean, it's not exactly a a position of need here. Although, of course, you can never get too many shooters. Um, Rob, Buddy Heald wants $110 million and the Kings want to give him $90 million over four years. What do you make of this? If you were Buddy Heald's agent, would you be pushing this as hard as they are in the media saying, look, if you don't pay up, we're going to try to go somewhere else? I mean, I'd push it however you can, because I mean,
2: the reality is that Buddy is going to get paid the 2020, you know, the free agent class he's walking into is just not good enough to like sufficiently satisfy the market. And so someone is going to pay him. It's just a matter of, you know, can the Kings, which I think it's understandable in their situation, why they want to kind of pare this number down, can they get to a more reasonable number than what someone's going to offer him in restricted free agency? Because Buddy is really good. And when you look out there, if we're assuming, you know, Anthony Davis is likely to stay with the Lakers, you know, the Raptors are probably going to bring Siakam back. Kyle Lowry already extended his deal. Karis LeVert already got his deal. So unless you're like really into the idea of like Gordon Hayward or Goran Dragic or somebody like that, you know, this is really does look to be in terms of a free agent class. It looks to leave a lot of teams really wanting. And I could see somebody throwing a lot of money at Buddy. And so I think he's he's coming at it from a pretty reasonable place saying, look, this is the number I want. I'm already really good. Maybe it's not in the Kings' best interest to ultimately give it to him, but you kind of are the contract you can get. And so is he a max player? I mean, yeah, if he can get that offer from somebody.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, in a vacuum, is he a max player to me? The answer is no. Okay, I'm not the world's biggest Buddy Heald fan. I know he's made a lot of progress uh, these last couple of years. The three-point shooting is outrageous, like Byron mentioned. I mean, it's really, really good. I think the only player in the NBA who shot a better percentage on threes and shot more and made more threes per game than Buddy Hill last year was Steph Curry, right? So he's in absolutely elite company there. Uh, The defensive stuff, I don't think it's ever getting solved. Uh, You know, this whole age question, you know, now he's like 26 uh, and, you know, he's coming out his fourth year of a rookie contract. To me, he is basically who he is. You know, I don't see a lot of other major upside there. Usually in that second contract, a lot of what you're paying for is untapped potential. And I think just because of Buddy's, you know, strange age situation, um, where if people don't know this, you know, he he basically lied about how old he was, uh, you know, coming into the NBA and they had to kind of correct it after the fact, Um, you know, that, that part of it scares me a little bit because I don't think the player we saw last year is worth 110 over four. Now you're right to bring in the context of the actual market, right? Because not only is there a team out there who just doesn't have a shooter who would be willing to pay that. And we saw this happen a few years ago with a guy like Alan Crabb, where uh, I think he's a, a less established player than Buddy Heald by far. And yet he was able to cash out a major contract in restricted free agency uh, just because that's such a glaring need for a lot of teams. Uh, you also have just Sacramento's own history, right? And, and Buddy was alluding to this, but he's like in his post game press conference the other night, he says... When's the last time they got a good free agent? And there was just crickets because, you know, they never get good free agents. And it was funny to me because they had just signed a bunch of free agents this summer. So he's just like... <laughs> Shots basically fired at Corey of,
2: Joseph, I guess.
1: Right. And Trevor Ariza and all these other guys were looking around like, what do you mean they've never signed a good free agent? Uh, but if he had wanted to continue, Rob, he could have kept going. He could have said, look at some of these deals that Vlade hands out. Like, look how much he paid Harrison. This guy's just handing money out. Why is he going to get cheap when it comes to me? and um you know that context matters you know i think that it's very important and something that we don't talk about enough the contracts in your locker room have to line up with who's doing the work or you're going to have beef you're going to have drama right and it's just a fact of life if this guy over here is making 20 you're making 16 or they're only offering you 16 and you're doing more work than him and you're contributing to more wins you've been there longer you're going to be mad about it that's just how it works in the nba and i think from buddy's standpoint I think that's a lot has a lot to do with where he's targeting that number that he wants, um, because you know you look around that locker room, there's guys who are definitely overpaid, and I think Buddy's in a reasonable position to say, look, if everybody in here is overpaid, I got to be overpaid too. Sure, <laughs> you better be taking care of me, and uh, you know I think that's the tricky part with um, you know some of these executives who are maybe you know like not top ten at their position, right? Uh, if you make smaller mistakes, those can compound uh, on, the, on the big ones. Well, I think this is the real kind of first gut check moment for any young team is when you have
2: to start paying the young guys real NBA money. And not only is that, you know, you have to kind of price them out and try to gauge the market and understand what they're worth and offer something fair that won't offend them, but you also don't want to overcommit to them. And then you have all the locker room dynamics you described where some young guys are going to get paid before other young guys. And what does that cause in terms of, you know, shifting the dynamic of the locker room or causing certain resentments? And whenever you dig deep into this stuff, I all I ever come back to is like, how did, you know, maybe the miracle of Steph Curry in a lot of ways is the fact that he was so underpaid for so long and was just kind of cool with it, knowing that eventually he was going to get his money, but really played out an undermarket deal for a long time. And it
1: never was ever an issue. For sure. Hey, let's uh, close here with another contract, Bradley Beal and the Washington Wizards. Now back in June, uh, I had reported, you know, from LA at the award show that you know Beal said he was open to an extension, and I thought he was just saying the right thing, uh, you know, during a tricky time for the franchise. I think the general reaction to that report um, and, and his comments was, well, you know, he's he's a good team player, but come on, like, why would he sign an extension with the Washington Wizards out of nowhere? Three months later, well, not really out of nowhere, but surprising a lot of people, I think. Beal has agreed to a two-year, $72 million extension that will keep him uh, in Washington through 2022. And even though this seems like a win-win for both parties, Will, an open-floor Globe emailer, does not believe so. He writes, "As a longtime listener and one of the two Wizards fans in the world, can you explain why Beal and the Wizards uh, came to this agreement?" Did the Wizards sell Beal on the sudden championship pedigree of Washington with the Mystics and the Nationals being so successful, or is this just another case of Wizards mismanagement and dysfunction? So Will's not feeling it, Rob. Uh, What do you think? I mean i think we need to this is kind of an antiquated
2: idea in some sense the idea that signing an extension or committing to more years and more money means that you're staying and i think in a in a modern league where the you know the total number of years that players can be offered has been pared down over the years where we're not talking about really that many long-term contracts anymore often the longest ones that are handed out are like three with a player option attached which effectively is just three years guaranteed putting more years on a guy like Bradley Beal's contract makes him more tradable. It makes him more attractive to other teams. If you're the Wizards, it puts you in a position where you can trade him for more stuff because the team you're trading into knows that they're getting more value in return. And so I think the Wizards, obviously, if you have a player like Bradley Beal, you want to keep him under contract on the possibility you can keep him, but also on the possibility you could trade him too. If that ultimately is the direction they choose to go, I don't think this extension is standing in the way of that at all.
1: Yeah, no, not at all. I think um, he officially cannot be traded until next summer. So I think the biggest trade ramification here is it just takes all the pressure of those trade talks that we're going to bubble up at the deadline away from this franchise, which I think is going to have a really tough season, right? I mean, they're going to be losing a lot of games. And so as soon as those losses start mounting, everybody is going to be speculating about Beal trades. Getting this deal done now totally changes the narrative for their season. You know, now it just becomes your typical uh, rebuilding developmental type year. Uh, Who's going to be players that can stick and be a part of Beal's supporting cast going forward? And then you can, you know, towards the end of the season, you know, maybe you're starting to get into your countdown of like, when's John Wall going to be back, right? I think that's a healthier dynamic. It's certainly a healthier dynamic for the young players. One other offshoot uh, secondary benefit here, though, Rob, it makes tanking a lot easier down the stretch, right? Because you remember last year, Washington did not tank. Beal played more minutes than anyone in the league. He played 82 games. He was gunning for his numbers all the way until the bitter end, even after they had been eliminated from the playoff chase. And that's just counterintuitive for a team in their position, right? I mean, they're likely going to be playing for ping pong balls this year. And I think if Beal's already locked in, he already has his money. He's not necessarily concerned about this whole supermax thing. And, you know, he's just taken care of. Um, it, it becomes an easier conversation in March and April if you want to say, hey, man, like, how about, you know, we just shut this thing down a little bit earlier, give some young guys more of an opportunity to play, keep the miles off your body, and we go forward hoping to get, you know, a top five pick. Like, I could easily see the Wizard season playing out like that. And if a guy doesn't have that money taken care of, you know, Beal has no reason to go along with that plan, right? He just wants to go out there and play and and to cash the next check and and to increase his earning power. So uh, I think it makes things significantly easier for all parties here in the short term. And I think, you know, from a financial perspective, you'd agree with me, Beal's worth a max, right?
2: Yeah, I think, and especially for a team in the Wizards position, if you're looking to get kind of your first star in the door
1: or retain your first star... Throw money at that dude. He's a really good player. So, Will, uh, our conclusion is you're nuts. Uh, <laughs> I understand that you've been, uh, you know, bombarded with decades worth of bad news for the Wizards. And if something does happen to Beal injury wise, and, and he had some issues early in his career, um, and of course, you know, Wall has been dealing with all sorts of issues here recently. That's going to be a painful blow to have those gigantic numbers on your your, your cap. Uh, but you know, y- you have to take some risks here if, if you're Washington. And I think the life. Uh, experience going forward of knowing you've got Beal to sort of build your next era around rather than wondering if he's going to you know start eyeing greener pastures or force his way out or go try to join a super team um, or or whatever else it's it's worth it you know this is a small price to pay
2: it's a bit tragic that Wizards fans are so shell-shocked that the idea of extending Bradley Beal makes them scared
1: like that's the state we've you know that's what we ultimately come to here yeah, well, look, I mean, if if you go bankrupt like four times in your life, you know, going to the ATM again, you know, pull, <laughs> pulling some money out, you don't want to do that. You'd rather not if you don't have to. I get it. I think in this case, uh, Will, it's going to work out okay for you and your franchise. Um, you know, that being said, I think the team's going to be terrible and they should shut down Bill as soon as possible. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how I'm going to keep it real for you to, to end this podcast, Will. Um, so, you know, we're not just giving you generic praise here. All right, Rob, Uh, thanks again for stepping up as co-host. I really appreciate everything you brought to the table today. Great awards picks. Emailers, reach Rob and I openfloormail at gmail.com, open floor mail at gmail.com. And also check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. There's a section that says rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. I'm also on Instagram at Ben.golliver. Rob's on Instagram, but he refuses to promote it. Rob, until next week, I will talk to you. Take care, Ben. Hey!